Ecclesiastes chapter 8, and we'll work our way through it uh, verse by verse as we have been doing. Um, but just as, uh, as you're doing that, and uh, just to get us thinking, I wonder if you've uh, heard of the story of King Canute. I know it's one that uh, we heard of when I was at school. I don't know whether they still teach it. Uh, but what I didn't know was that uh, the earliest account of King Canute and the incoming tide was by a guy called Henry of Huntingdon, and that was in the 12th century, so it was not that long after uh, the event was supposed to have happened. And this is what he wrote. At the high point of his reign, King Canute ordered his throne to be set upon the seashore as the tide was coming in, and then addressed the rising waters. You and the land on which my throne is standing are subject to me. No one has ever defied my royal commands and gone unpunished. I command you, then, do not rise on my land, nor dare to splash either limb or robe of your lord. The sea, however, continued its customary rise, disdainfully splashing his feet and legs. Now, you hear a, a story like that, and you think, well, gosh, what a, an arrogant person that is. What a, a foolish king that is to think that the waves have to obey him. And it's a very strange thing for him to do, isn't it? Um, why would you do such a strange thing? Well, uh, actually, it turns out he's got a bit of a bad press over the years, but uh, we'll find out a bit more about that later. But it's, it's true, isn't it, that with people that uh, maybe are, are clever or uh, in a position of authority, it can uh, be that they almost have an arrogance about them, and maybe a real kind of sternness or a seriousness about them. Um, and uh, if you look at the first verse of uh, chapter 8, you'll see that actually uh, Solomon kind of says the opposite. That actually, even though these people maybe have, uh, wise people have authority maybe, uh, they understand the way of the world and they have a kind of great knowledge, that actually wisdom should make your face shine. Look at verse 1, a man's wisdom makes his face shine and the sternness of his face is changed. Now you see there's an actual uh, joy and almost a compassion and a gentleness that Solomon is describing here which is very much uh, different to uh, that kind of arrogance or sternness or seriousness that sometimes we associate with very clever people or very intellectual people. So how can we face the realities of life, the wickedness of the world around us, but do so with peace and grace and joy? How can we gain wisdom and understanding about a world that is so fallen yet still have a gentleness and mercy to our character. You know, it's so easy, isn't it, that the more we look around us, just to become very bitter and very resentful and very kind of angry at all that's going on. But actually, the first verse of this chapter, Solomon says that shouldn't be so for those that are truly wise. For true wisdom makes a person's face shine. So what we're going to do as we go through chapter 8 is really look at how uh, Solomon got to that point. What is it uh, that enables us, even in the midst of understanding all that's going on around us and facing the realities of a fallen world, how can we retain that sense of, of joy, of peace, of gentleness? And the first thing he says is that we obey authority. If you look at verses 2 to 7, he talks about the authority of the king. And in Solomon's day, the king, it wasn't like now, they didn't kind of have parliament and that. So the king really had ultimate authority. He decided 
what was right and what was wrong and when things should be done. And Jesus encouraged his disciples to obey authority. Remember in Matthew 2, uh, 22, verse 21, render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And even the apostles stated clearly that all authority is appointed by God and therefore we honour God by obeying it, even if it means suffering as a result. And we're going to read a couple of uh, passages now, one from Paul and the second from Peter. And they're not easy passages because what they're suggesting is that uh, we should obey authority for the sake of God, even as Solomon said, even if that means that we might suffer as a result. And I'm not saying that these are easy passages and you could preach a whole sermon on them, but I do think they're relevant uh, to our discussion today. Romans 13, 1 and 2. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And the authorities exist that, that sorry, the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God. And those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. 1 Peter 2, 13 to 25. Therefore, submit yourself to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme or to governors, as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you may, be, you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men, as free, yet not using your liberty as a cloak for vice, but as bondservants of God. Honour all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honour the king, Servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh, for this is commendable. If because of conscience towards God one endures grief, suffering wrongfully, for what credit is it if when beaten for your faults you take it patiently? But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. Now, this is a difficult passage, and it's often one that I turn to when I think I'm uh, going through a difficult period at work, and maybe there's a, a bit of injustice in the way that I've been treating or something about the policies or procedures that I don't like, because it's very easy, isn't it, just to kind of rise up and say, no, it's wrong. And I'm not saying that we can never do that. I'm not saying it's not right to stand up for justice. But there is an element of being a Christian, which means that we do suffer, that we do where we can try and obey authority, even if it means that we will suffer a result. And the passage goes on. For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow, that we should follow his steps, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who when he was reviled did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Now you might say, well, that's all very well, because you know, if you're living under uh, a government that is um, an, an authority that is just doing the right thing and uh, is acting justly, then, you know, that's all very well. But, you know, look around us these days and there's just corruption everywhere. But actually, if you think about that, Paul and Peter wrote those instructions under the Emperor Nero. 
And it was Nero who persecuted Christians, and it's under his reign that Peter and Paul were both martyred. So this is not Peter and Paul sitting in an, in an ivory tower in a lovely sort of Christian utopia saying, oh, you know, just obey all the authorities because, you know, um, it, it'll turn out well. No, this is them saying in, in, in the midst of persecution and difficulty that actually we do obey authority because authority is there uh, under the authority of God and actually that we honour God by obeying authority. So it's important that we do uh, follow policies and procedures where they're laid down by authority. Again, it's very easy just to say, well, I'll just cut some corners or uh, do things my own way. Because sometimes it's very frustrating, bureaucracy, and uh, it can really test our patience. But actually following procedure is a way of honouring the authority that's set up by God. Trying to cut corners, bribery or deception is not good for us. We saw this in the previous chapter. And it's a disrespect for the authority that God has set up. Because it's very easy, isn't it? And I find myself falling into this trap to be incredibly critical and judgmental of those in authority over us. It's very easy just to stand on the sidelines without any responsibility or without having to solve any of the problems and just kind of criticise those who are doing so. It's a bit like they always say about the opposition parties, isn't it? That it's very easy for them to, to, to say what they say because they haven't actually got to do any of it. And how easy is it for us to stand in our workplace or uh, in the country or even in church and just to criticise those in authority and the judgments they're making? But actually, we couldn't do any better ourselves. We wouldn't be able to solve the difficult problems they're trying to solve. And actually, all it does is it just makes us bitter and resentful. James 1.20, the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. You know, us sitting on the sidelines, just getting more and more irate, sort of shaking our fist at the world, is not going to do us any good. And how often you see that people just get themselves in a, a real state, even on social media, by seemingly sort of getting angry at everything and criticising everything. Now, I'm not saying that there isn't a place for standing up for where there's obvious injustice. I'm not saying that we shouldn't ever criticise. But what I am saying is we have to be careful that we don't fall into that trap of becoming bitter and resentful of the authority that is over us. Because generally speaking, and you'll see this in, chat, in verse 5, when we obey the king, we will not be condemned as he will be judged to have acted rightly and the king will treat him well. And generally speaking, we can be thankful still in the society that we live in, I know it's not true for all societies, that when we do the right thing, we are treated well. And whoever disobeys authority will right, rightly experience judgment. Paul says in Romans 13, 3 to 4, for rulers are not a terror to do to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is God's minister, an avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. However, Jesus, Paul, Peter and Solomon also knew that earthly kings and earthly authority is limited and that there is a higher authority than the king that we must obey. God has ultimate power over all creation, all authorities for all time and could do what he wants when he wants. And we sung about that in the hymns that we've sang this evening, that God is ultimately on the throne. 
So back to King Canute. Uh, if you remember, he's just got wet. Uh, the tide didn't obey him, and it was coming in and splashing at him. And Henry of Huntington's account continues. Let all the world, Canute said, skipping backwards, know that the power of kings is a vain and trifling thing. No king is worthy of that title except that king who commands heaven, earth, and the sea obey, according to eternal laws. After this, Canute never again wore his crown upon his head, but set it upon an icon of the Lord's crucifixion in praise of God, the great king. You see, actually, Canute had had some bad press. I was taught at school that he was just an arrogant king and that the whole moral of the story was the fact that, uh, you know, that uh, arrogant people would be brought down. But actually, it's the opposite. Canute wasn't arrogant, but he did it to demonstrate to his subjects the limitations of his own earthly power and to point them to one who has the ultimate power. So this means that sometimes it can be right to disobey authority if it's commanding something that is contrary to scripture. Acts 4, 18 to 20. So they called them and commanded them not to speak at all, nor teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. And again in chapter 5, 27 to 29, the high priest asked them, saying, Did we not strictly command you not to teach in, his na- in this name? And look, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood on us. But Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. You see, really, our attitude should be a willingness to obey authority where we can, unless we really can't, due to it conflicting with the word of God, rather than an unwillingness to obey authority and trying to find a biblical excuse not to. Now, I know people like that, that are rebels at heart, I guess, and just try and kind of find things in the Bible that will mean that they don't have to do what everyone else is doing. But actually, our heart shouldn't be like that. Wherever we can, we should be obeying authority, because authority is set there by God. And these days, we're witnessing a real decline, aren't we, in people's willingness to accept and respect authority. And again, some of that is obviously because uh, the authority is, is doing things that, that uh, are really difficult to respect, and there is injustice and corruption. But actually, I think it goes deeper than that, because I think there's an increasing desire to do what is right in their own eyes, a bit like the time of judges. You know, everybody just wants to do what is right, themselves and with an increase in atheism comes an increase in the idea that there is no absolute truth or absolute authority and therefore people can decide what is right and wrong and act accordingly if it's right for me then it's right if you look at verse 7 and we saw this in chapter 3 every action has an appointed time and eventually a judgment on it and both of these are not um, appointed by us. It's not up to us to decide what is right and wrong, but both are determined by God. So wisdom, true wisdom, is the ability to decide what is good to do and when it's good to do it. And this will include when to obey authority and when not to. It also includes how to respectfully challenge authority. You know, you can think of examples within the Bible where people have challenged authority, but they've done it in a way that is respectful. They've done it in a way that honours the Lord. Think of Jonathan challenging Saul in 1 Samuel 19. Think of Nathan challenging David 
2 Samuel 12. And think of Esther challenging the king in Esther chapter 7. See, a wise man knows that his ultimate authority, the one to whom he must give an account, is Jesus, the King of Kings. A wise man, a truly wise man, loves and obeys the King of Kings and so will not face condemnation on the Day of Judgment. However, even a wise man's ability to discern the future is limited, and so we will make mistakes. And if you remember, we discussed that in chapter 3. Sometimes we do the right thing, but we do it at the wrong time. Sometimes we do what is right or seems right at the time, but in hindsight, it turns out not to have been good. So firstly, obeying authority as a general rule is a good thing. It's a thing that will help us to stay gentle and peaceful. And secondly, you'll see in verses 8 to 9, is the recognition that human power is limited. And it often leads to injustice. Solomon knew as king that he had power to take other people's lives, but not the power to prevent death, his own or anyone else's. He didn't have, excuse me, he didn't have the power to retain his spirit. He knew that the parting of the spirit and the body was in God's control. He also knew that it's very hard to control somebody. You may force them to do what you want, but you can't force them to truly believe what you want. Human authority is limited. It's also humanly impossible to prevent someone from reaping the wages of their sin, and the wages of sin is death. Those who have lived in rebellion and against God will find out after death that they've been a slave to sin, serving Satan and themselves, and actually fighting on the wrong side, on the losing side. As we've seen in previous chapters, those who rule will often cause harm to those they rule over through injustice and oppression. But oppressing others also hurts them as it hardens their soul. They may have gained fame and influence from their wickedness and even been flattered with an honourable funeral, but eventually they will be forgotten by men. However, God will not forget and will call them to account after death. That brings us on to our third point, seen in verses 10 to 13, that every sin will eventually reach the judgment seat. And again, this is one of the things that can give us a peace and a a joy, even in the midst of difficulties, knowing that nobody gets away with anything. We live in a day of grace where sin is not immediately punished. When somebody does something wrong, God just doesn't zap them uh, from on high and punish them immediately. And as a result, as Solomon identifies, people feel they're getting away with it. They're getting away with disobeying God. They're getting away with doing things their own way by oppressing and hurting other people. And so they continue and increase in their sin. The world even goes so far as to give celebrity status to criminals or those involved in immorality to glamorise their actions. How many uh, programmes on TV, what proportion of programmes glamorise crime and violence? How much people look around them and say how terrible the world is and how awful it is and then switch the TV on and watch exactly the same thing for entertainment. But judgment will eventually come and no one will escape. 1 Timothy 5.24 Some men's sins are clearly evident, preceding them to judgment, but those of some men follow late. Hebrews 9.27 It is appointed for men to die once, but after this, the judgment So for now, injustice seems to reign. There is an appearance that people are getting away with things, that there's no one in control, that that things are just running loose. 
The wicked seem to have the blessings expected of the righteous and the righteous, the hardships expected of the wicked. And you'll see this in verse 14. This doesn't happen, just happen in serious crimes or injustices. Every day we see around us selfish and immoral people getting away with breaking rules and benefiting from those uh, rule breaking. Whilst those of us who try to be good citizens, try to do what is right, try to think of other people, seem to lose out. Sometimes, if we're honest, this can make us question the power and justice of God if we forget that actually a day of judgment is coming. Why does he allow these things to happen? Well, if he judged every sin, then nobody would survive. But we're in that day of grace and favour where people have an opportunity to repent and turn to the Saviour. Even if it doesn't make us question God, it can just be very frustrating and wearying to try to do the right thing but to see the wicked prosper. Sometimes it makes us wonder why we bother trying to do the right thing at all. Sometimes we think, well, if you can't beat them, join them. But this is nothing new. Remember what we read in Psalm 73? Verse 13, the psalmist said, Surely I have cleansed my heart in vain. Now ultimately you know that he hadn't. Ultimately you know that it's right to, uh, to live a holy life, to honour the Lord. But you can see the despair and the de- the just utter frustration that he's saying, why are the wicked prospering when I'm trying to do the right thing and suffering? But that's the way of the world. That's the way of our fallen world. That's what the Lord is ordaining and allowing. But a day of judgment is coming. So how do we, in the face of all of this, in the face of the injustice and the corruption that we see around us, in the face of seeing uh, the wicked and the selfish seemingly doing well, and those that are trying to do good, persecuted, and suffering. How do we maintain a face and a heart that is light, that is full of joy and peace and gentleness? Well, I think it's all to do with contentment. And you'll see this in verses 15 and 18, 15 to 18. And it's actually a a refrain throughout the book. We've seen it time after time. Solomon goes and looks, stares straight in the face of all the horrors of this fallen world. He's very blunt, he's very honest about the state of the world. But then the next minute he encourages us to find joy in the simple things. And I think this is because contentment should be a foundation, not a roof. And what do I mean by that? Well, hopefully we'll see as, I, uh, as we look at these last few verses. See, in the last chapter we heard that we should not be afraid of facing the realities of death and suffering, as God will use this to bring joy to our hearts and help us to be content and enjoy the good things that God has given us and enjoy God himself. Do you remember we said that it's better to be in the house of mourning than the house of feasting? That actually having to face the realities of death and suffering, that God will use that to bring joy to our hearts as we look to him. That we don't try and find pleasure and satisfaction in the things of this world, but that we look beyond them, we look up to him. And at the conclusion of this chapter, I think Solomon is exhorting us not to allow our confusion and frustration at those in authority, at injustices or the prosperity of the wicked to rob us of our enjoyment of God and the good things he gives us. You know, I'll put my hand up and say that over my life, I've had so much joy and peace robbed by me getting angry and frustrated at what the wicked are doing or what's happening in the world around me and I've lost the joy 
that is mine in Christ. Why? Because I'm not looking at him. I'm looking around at the things going on. And I forget that a day of judgment is coming. I'm forgetting that actually judgment belongs to him. As Christians, we can still make a stand and we should make a stand against injustices and immorality. But we can also be content and enjoy the good things that God gives us. We know that total justice um, will never fully and wholly be accomplished here on earth. But God will ultimately judge everyone and bring about justice. And if we wait for the end of injustice, if we wait for perfect leaders, if we wait for authority to judge in exactly the way that we think they should, if we wait for the end of wickedness before we're content or enjoy life, then we'll be waiting our whole lives. We'll never be content. We'll never enjoy life. Solomon knew this and exhorts us to enjoy the basics of life, to be content and thankful. See, all things will pass. The pursuit of all earthly things will eventually disappoint. So we can find satisfaction in the small things. Don't be proud and hold out for satisfaction and meaning only in the lofty things, only in having more or knowing more or being more. They too will ultimately disappoint. You can be content with your life now if you choose. If you don't choose contentment now, you'll not choose it when you eventually get what you want. You'll just want more. Again, as we've seen in the, the book as we've gone along, how many times does Solomon say that, you know, don't set your heart on something, that, you know, if, if only I can have this, if only I can be this, then my life will be complete and I'll be content and happy. It won't. You'll get it and you'll want more. So contentment and thankfulness is a foundation on which to build and improve your life. It's not a roof which crowns your success. Contentment is the starting point it's not the end point. Be content now and seek a better life as a result. Don't try to build a better life thinking that you'll cap it with contentment as a roof once you've built your walls high enough. You know what? They'll never be high enough. So what can we say in conclusion? Well, let me ask a question. Who is on the throne of your life? Who do you serve? Because you've got to serve someone. Maybe these days we um, set up individuals as self-defining, self-actualizing, uh, that we're in control of our own lives. But the truth is that we serve someone, we're always serving someone. Are you serving yourself? Are you serving your earthly passions and idols? Are you, are you, or are you serving the one that really is the only one to serve, the Lord Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords? You see, with Jesus on the throne of our lives, it gives us a peace and a joy and a rest, even in the face of a fallen world. We don't have to ignore or try and hide from it. We don't have to seek uh, pleasure and uh, satisfaction in the things of this world. We can obey earthly authority, only needing to take a stand when we're asked to do something that goes against Scripture. We can be satisfied and enjoy what God has given us. We can have contentment as a foundation for our lives. We can trust the judgment of all people and all things to Jesus when he returns. You see, one day we will all stand before Jesus, the King of kings and the judge of all. I implore you today, submit to his authority and serve him now before it's too late.
Amen.